This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. George Bernard Shaw by G. K. Chesterton Section 11 Chapter 6 Part 2 The Philosopher Shaw is wrong about nearly all the things one learns early in life, while one is still simple. Most human beings start with certain facts of psychology, to which the rest of life must be somewhat related. For instance, every man falls in love, and no man falls into free love. When he falls into that, he calls it lust, and is always ashamed of it, even when he boasts of it. That there is some connection between a love and a vow, nearly every human being knows before he is eighteen. That there is a solid and instinctive connection between the idea of sexual ecstasy and the idea of some sort of almost suicidal constancy, this, I say, is simply the first fact in one's own psychology. Boys and girls know it almost before they know their own language. How far it can be trusted, how it can best be dealt with, all that is another matter. But lovers lust after constancy more than after happiness. If you are in any sense prepared to give them what they ask, then what they ask, beyond all question, is an oath of final fidelity. Lovers may be lunatics, lovers may be children, lovers may be unfit for citizenship and outside human argument. You can take up that position if you will. But lovers do not only desire love, they desire marriage. The root of legal monogamy does not lie, as Shaw and his friends are forever drearily asserting, in the fact that the man is a mere tyrant and the woman a mere slave. It lies in the fact that if their love for each other is the noblest and freest love conceivable, it can only find its heroic expression in both becoming slaves. I only mention this matter here as a matter which most of us do not need to be taught, for it was the first lesson of life. In after years we may make up what code or compromise about sex we like, but we all know that constancy, jealousy, and the personal pledge are natural and inevitable in sex. We do not feel any surprise when we see them, either in a murder or in a valentine. We may or may not see wisdom in early marriages, but we know quite well that wherever the thing is genuine at all, early loves will mean early marriages. But Shaw had not learnt about this tragedy of the sexes, what the rustic ballads of any country on earth would have taught him, he had not learnt what universal common sense has put into all the folklore of the earth, that love cannot be thought of clearly for an instant, except as monogamous. The old English ballads never sing the praises of lovers, they always sing the praise of true lovers, and that is the final philosophy of the question. The same is true of Mr. Shaw's refusal to understand the love of the land either in the form of patriotism or of private ownership. It is the attitude of an Irishman cut off from the soil of Ireland, retaining the audacity and even cynicism of the national type, but no longer fed from the roots with its pathos or its experience. This broader and more brotherly rendering of convention must be applied particularly to the conventions of the drama, since that is necessarily the most democratic of all the arts. 
and it will be found generally that most of the theatrical conventions rest on a real artistic basis. The Greek unities, for instance, were not proper objects of the meticulous and trivial imitation of Seneca or Gabriel Harvey, but still less were they the right objects for the equally trivial and far more vulgar impatience of men like Macaulay. That a tale should, if possible, be told of one place or one day or a manageable number of characters is an ideal plainly rooted in an aesthetic instinct. But if this be so with classical drama, it is yet more certainly so with romantic drama against the somewhat decayed dignity of which Bernard Shaw was largely in rebellion. There was one point in particular upon which the Ibsenites claimed to have reformed the romantic convention which is worthy of special allusion. Shaw and all the other Ibsenites were fond of insisting that a defect in the romantic drama was its tendency to end with wedding bells. Against this they set the modern drama of middle age, the drama which described marriage itself instead of its poetic preliminaries. Now if Bernard Shaw had been more patient with popular tradition, more prone to think that there might be some sense in its survival, he might have seen this particular problem much more clearly. The old playwrights have left us plenty of plays of marriage and middle age. Othello is as much about what follows the wedding bells as the doll's house. Macbeth is about a middle-aged couple as much as little Eyolf. But we ask ourselves what is the real difference. We shall, I think, find that it can be fairly stated thus. The old tragedies of marriage, though not love stories, are like love stories in this that they work up to some act or stroke which is irrevocable, as marriage is irrevocable, to the fact of death or of adultery. Now the reason why our fathers did not make marriage in the middle-aged and static sense the subject of their plays was a very simple one. It was that a play is a very bad place for discussing that topic. You cannot easily make a good drama out of the success or failure of a marriage just as you could not make a good drama of the growth of an oak tree or the decay of an empire. As Polonius very reasonably observed, it is too long. A happy love affair will make a drama simply because it is dramatic. It depends on an ultimate yes or no, but a happy marriage is not dramatic. Perhaps it would be less happy if it were. The essence of a romantic heroine is that she asks herself an intense question, but the essence of a sensible wife is that she is much too sensible to ask herself any questions at all. All the things that make monogamy a success are in their nature undramatic things. The silent growth of an instinctive confidence, the common wounds and victories, the accumulation of customs, the rich maturing of old jokes. Sane marriage is an untheatrical thing. It is therefore not surprising that most modern dramatists had devoted themselves to insane marriage. To summarize, before touching the philosophy which Shaw has ultimately adopted, we must quit the notion that we know it already, and that it is hit off in such journalistic terms as these three. Shaw does not wish to multiply problem plays or even problems. He has such skepticism as is the misfortune of his age 
but he has this dignified and courageous quality that he does not come to ask questions but to answer them he is not a paradox monger he is a wild logician far too simple even to be called a sophist he understands everything in life except its paradoxes especially that ultimate paradox that the very things that we cannot comprehend are the things that we have to take for granted lastly he is not especially social or collectivist on the contrary he rather dislikes men in the mass though he can appreciate them individually he has no respect for collective humanity in its two great forms either in that momentary form which we call a mob or that enduring form which we call a convention the general cosmic theory which can so far be traced through the earlier essays and plays of bernard shaw may be expressed in the image of schopenhauer standing on his head i cheerfully concede that schopenhauer looks much nicer in that posture than in his original one but i can hardly suppose that he feels more comfortable the substance of the change is this Roughly speaking, Schopenhauer maintained that life is unreasonable. The intellect, if it could be impartial, would tell us to cease. But a blind partiality, an instinct quite distinct from thought, drives us on to take desperate chances in an essentially bankrupt lottery. Shaw seems to accept this dingy estimate of the rational outlook, but adds a somewhat arresting comment. Schopenhauer had said, life is unreasonable, so much the worse for all living things shaw said life is unreasonable so much the worse for reason life is the higher call life we must follow it may be that there is some undetected fallacy in reason itself perhaps the whole man cannot get inside his own head any more than he can jump down his own throat but there is about the need to live to suffer and to create that imperative quality which can truly be called supernatural of whose voice it can indeed be said that it speaks with authority and not as the scribes this is the first and the finest item of original bernard shaw creed that if reason says that life is irrational life must be content to reply that reason is lifeless life is the primary thing and if reason impedes it, then reason must be trodden down into the mire amid the most abject superstitions. In the ordinary sense, it would be especially absurd to suggest that Shaw desires man to be a mere animal, for that is always associated with lust or incontinence, and Shaw's ideals are strict, hygienic, and even, one might say, old-maidish. But there is a mystical sense in which one may say literally that Shaw desires man to be an animal. That is, he desires him to cling first and last to life, to the spirit of animation, to the thing which is common to him and the birds and the plants. Man should have the blind faith of a beast. He should be as mystically immutable as a cow, and as deaf to sophistries as a fish. Shaw does not wish him to be a philosopher or an artist. He does not even wish him to be a man so much as he wishes him to be in this holy sense an animal he must follow the flag of life as fiercely from conviction as all other creatures follow it from instinct 
But this Shavian worship of life is by no means lively. It has nothing in common either with the braver or baser forms of what we commonly call optimism. It has none of the omnivorous exultation of Walt Whitman or the fiery pantheism of Shelley. Bernard Shaw wishes to show himself not so much as an optimist, but rather as a sort of faithful and contented pessimist. This contradiction is the key to nearly all his early and more obvious contradictions, and to many which remain to the end. Whitman and many modern idealists have talked of taking even duty as a pleasure. It seems to me that Shaw takes even pleasure as a duty. In a queer way he seems to see existence as an illusion, and yet as an obligation. To every man and woman, bird, beast, and flower, life is a love call to be eagerly followed. To Bernard Shaw it is merely a military bugle to be obeyed. In short, he fails to feel the command of nature, if one must use the anthropomorphic fable of nature instead of the philosophic term God can be enjoyed as well as obeyed. He paints life at its darkest, and then tells the babe unborn to take the leap in the dark. That is heroic, and to my instinct at least, Schopenhauer looks like a pygmy beside his pupil. But it is the heroism of a morbid and almost asphyxiated age. It is awful to think that this world, which so many poets have praised, has even for a time been depicted as a man-trap, into which we may just have the manhood to jump. Think of all those ages through which men have talked of having the courage to die, and then remember that we have actually fallen to talking about having the courage to live. It is exactly this oddity or dilemma which may be said to culminate in the crowning work of his later and more constructive period. The work in which he certainly attempted, whether with success or not, to state his ultimate and cosmic vision. I mean the play called Man and Superman. In approaching this play we must keep well in mind the distinction recently drawn that Shaw follows the banner of life, but austerely, not joyously. For him, nature has authority, but hardly charm. But before we approach it, it is necessary to deal with three things that lead up to it. First, it is necessary to speak of what remained of his old critical and realistic method, and then it is necessary to speak of the two important influences which led up to his last and most important change of outlook. First, since all our spiritual epics overlap, and man is often doing the old work while he is thinking the new, we may deal first with what may be fairly called his last two plays of pure worldly criticism. These are Major Barbara and John Bull's Other Island. Major Barbara, indeed, contains a strong religious element, but when all is said, the whole point of the play is that the religious element is defeated. Moreover, the actual expressions of religion in the play are somewhat unsatisfactory as expressions of religion, or even of reason. I must frankly say that Bernard Shaw always seems to me to use the word God not only without any idea of what it means, but without one moment's thought about what it could possibly mean. He said to some atheist, Never believe in a God that you cannot improve on. The atheist, being a sound theologian, naturally replied that one should not believe in a God whom one could improve on, as that would show that he was not God. 
In the same style, in Major Barbara, the heroine ends by suggesting that she will serve God without personal hope, so that she may owe nothing to God, and he owe everything to her. It does not seem to strike her that if God owes everything to her, he is not God. These things affect me merely as tedious perversions of a phrase. It is as if you said, I will never have a father unless I have begotten him. But the real sting and substance of Major Barbara is much more practical and to the point. It expresses not the new spirituality, but the old materialism of Bernard Shaw. Almost every one of Shaw's plays is an expanded epigram. But the epigram is not expanded, as with most people, into a hundred commonplaces. Rather, the epigram is expanded into a hundred other epigrams. The work is at least as brilliant in detail as it is in design, but it is generally possible to discover the original and pivotal epigram which is the center and purpose of the play. It is generally possible, even amid the blinding jewelry of a million jokes, to discover the grave, solemn, and sacred joke for which the play itself was written. The ultimate epigram of Major Barbara can be put thus. People say that poverty is no crime. Shaw says that poverty is a crime that it is a crime to endure it, a crime to be content with it, that it is the mother of all crimes of brutality, corruption, and fear. If a man says to Shaw that he is born of poor but honest parents, Shaw tells him that the very word but shows that his parents were probably dishonest. In short, he maintains here what he had maintained elsewhere, that what the people at this moment require is not more patriotism or more art or more religion or more morality or more sociology but simply more money the evil is not ignorance of decadence or sin or pessimism the evil is poverty the point of this particular drama is that even the noblest enthusiasm of the girl who becomes the salvation army officer fails under the brute money power of her father who is a modern capitalist when I have said this, it will be clear why this play, fine and full of bitter sincerity, as it is, must in a manner be cleared out of the way before we come to talk of Shaw's final and serious faith. For his serious faith is in the sanctity of human will, in the divine capacity for creation and choice, rising higher than environment and doom. And so far as that goes, Major Barbara is not only apart from his faith, but against his faith. Major Barbara is an account of environment victorious over heroic will. There are a thousand answers to the ethic in Major Barbara, which I should be inclined to offer. I might point out that the rich do not so much buy honesty as curtains to cover dishonesty, that they do not so much buy health as cushions to comfort disease, and I might suggest that the doctrine that poverty degrades the poor is much more likely to be used as an argument for keeping them powerless than as an argument for making them rich. But there is no need to find such answers to the materialistic pessimism of Major Barbara. The best answer to it is Shaw's own best and crowning philosophy, with which we shall shortly be concerned. 
John Bull's other island represents a realism somewhat more tinged with the later transcendentalism of its author. In one sense, of course, it is a satire on the conventional Englishman who is never so silly or sentimental as when he sees silliness and sentiment in the Irishman. Broadbent, whose mind is all fog and his morals all gush, is firmly persuaded that he is bringing reason and order among the Irish, whereas in truth they are all smiling at his illusions with the critical detachment of so many devils. There have been many plays depicting the absurd Paddy in a ring of Anglo-Saxons. The first purpose of this play is to depict the absurd Anglo-Saxon in a ring of ironical Paddies. But it has a second and more subtle purpose, which is very finely contrived. It is suggested that when all is said and done, there is in this preposterous Englishman a certain creative power which comes from his simplicity and optimism, from his profound resolution rather to live life than to criticize it. I know no finer dialogue of philosophical cross-purposes than that in which Broadbent boasts of his common sense, and his subtler Irish friend mystifies him by telling him that he, Broadbent, has no common sense, but only inspiration. The Irishman admits in Broadbent a certain unconscious spiritual force, even in his very stupidity. Lord Rosebery coined the very clever phrase, a practical mystic. Shaw is here maintaining that all practical men are practical mystics, and he is really maintaining also that the most practical of all the practical mystics is the one who is a fool. There is something unexpected and fascinating about this reversal of the usual argument touching enterprise and the businessman. This theory that success is created not by intelligence but by a certain half-witted and yet magical instinct. For Bernard Shaw, apparently the forests of factories and the mountains of money are not the creations of human wisdom or even of human cunning. They are rather manifestations of the sacred maxim which declares that God has chosen the foolish things of the earth to confound the wise. It is simplicity and even innocence that has made Manchester. As a philosophical fancy, this is interesting or even suggestive, but it must be confessed that as a criticism of the relations of England to Ireland it is open to a strong historical objection. The one weak point in John Bull's other island is that it turns on the fact that Broadbent succeeds in Ireland. But as a matter of fact, Broadbent has not succeeded in Ireland. If getting what one wants is the test and fruit of this mysterious strength, then the Irish peasants are certainly much stronger than the English merchants. For in spite of all the efforts of the merchants, the land has remained a land of peasants. No glorification of the English practicality, as if it were a universal thing, can ever get over the fact that we have failed in dealing with the one white people in our power who were markedly unlike ourselves. And the kindness of Broadbent has failed just as much as his common sense, because he was dealing with a people whose desire and ideal were different from his own. He did not share the Irish passion for small possession in land or for the more pathetic virtues of Christianity. In fact, the kindness of Broadbent has failed for the same reason 
that the gigantic kindness of Shaw has failed. The roots are different. It is like tying the tops of two trees together. Briefly, the philosophy of John Bull's other island is quite effective and satisfactory, except for this incurable fault. The fact that John Bull's other island is not John Bull's. End of section 11, chapter 6, part 2.